Welcome back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Friday, April 26th, 2013, and this is podcast number 307, and my name is Ben Stone. Uh, a couple quick announcements for today. Porkfest, of course, is coming up June 17th through 23rd at the Rogers Campground, Lancaster, New Hampshire. And... This is going to be the last announcement for the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo because it takes place tomorrow. And I'm going to give you some real quick instructions on how to get there. It's going to be in uh, Seabrook, New Hampshire on, uh, let's see, 20. it's at 29 Main, 29 Main Street in Seabrook. And now that you don't try to look that up in Google, what you need to do is it doesn't matter if you're going north or south on I-95. Uh, what you want to take exit 60 in Massachusetts. It's like, you know, uh, like a half a mile or so from, from the, uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire border in Massachusetts. Even if you're coming from the North going South, you still want to go all the way into Massachusetts. Well, actually it's the, the actual exit is right about on the border, right about where the sign is. You want to take that exit 60. Uh, like I said, no matter whether you're going North or South, take exit 60, uh, that follow that goes into a thing that's a road that's called Toll Road. Even though there's no toll, the name of the road is Toll Road. Very confusing. So you take Toll Road, and it goes to the east of the freeway. And your very first left is going to be on Main Street, and and you're actually in that's Main Street Seabrook. Even though uh, you're still in Massachusetts, so head north. That's the left on Main Street. Uh, you go about half a mile, and then you'll go into New Hampshire, and then you go just, I don't know, five or 600 yards. It's not very far at all. You'll still be on Main Street, and uh, and this is in Seabrook, and you want the intersection where Foley Mill Road, Lafayette Road, and, uh, and Main Street are right in that area. You're going to find uh, number 29 Main Street, and that's the uh, the building that you want. It's And that's going to be tomorrow. So if you're in the area, anywhere in South uh, New Hampshire, North Massachusetts, or anywhere in that area, it's probably you're probably going to have a lot of fun if you go there. Um, okay, now I wanted to mention that we do have the top 50 Bad Quaker podcasts uh, that's available on BitTorrent, and we have links to it at badquaker.com. Just scroll down, you'll see them there. Also on the forum, I'm going to be posting, I don't know if I'll get to this today or this weekend sometime, but I'm going to be a posting a list on the forum of, uh, of, the, of the top 50 podcasts that are in that, uh, that are in that uh, um, a BitTorrent feed. And one more time, I want to thank the, do- well, not just one more time, I want to continually thank the donors. Uh, you know, ever since we had our uh, little telethon where I came on the microphone and 
and told the basic finances of how badquaker.com works and how we're financing the trip to uh, Pork Fest and to the Michigan uh, Liberty Festival up there and how we're doing these things. We've had a, a fairly steady uh, stream of donations that are coming in, and I really appreciate that, including just like yesterday and the day before. There were, there were, I was really, I just, I can't thank you guys enough. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, now, I do have to have a correction because I misspoke in a podcast uh, where Kai was uh, was on with me, my part-time co-host. Uh, Kai was on the the podcast with me, and we were talking about some of the events around all the events happening with Boston and, and all that horrible tragedy that happened up there. And I had, what I did was I took two pictures that I had seen and in thinking about them, I blended those two pictures into one picture. So I have to make a correction. I had talked about a, uh, a picture of a middle-aged black man um, being interrogated by a uniformed military and being asked for his papers and to show his identification. And what I actually did was I, I blended two separate pictures in my mind. Uh, the first picture being a well-dressed middle-aged white man being stopped by uniformed military police and asked for papers. And the other is a well-dressed middle-aged black man being forced from his home at gunpoint with uh, fully automatic rifles pointed at him and you could just see the terror on his face. So neither of these is justifiable in anything even remotely near a free society, much less in a society that claims itself to be the, you know, the land of the free and a home of the brave. This should never happen in such a circumstances. But, but I did, uh, I blended those two pictures in my mind and I apologize for that. I, I try to be as accurate as possible, but, uh, but I messed up there. And I just want to mention for a second, I'm not going to make a big deal about the whole Boston thing on today's podcast, but I just want to keep, uh, I want people to keep in perspective the reality of what really happened. And I want to, you know, I want to ask you to really think about this. Are you seeing what you're told to see or are you seeing what really is? Because so much of what's going on, I mean, there's just barrages, even now, as long as it's been since all this stuff took place, there are still waves and waves every day of misinformation and, and shifting information and changing the information and just, you know, every, it's just coming nonstop from the media and from the government and, uh, and from the internet. And it's, it's, it, it can really be mind boggling. Keep in mind, again, keep perspective. Three people were killed at the Boston Marathon bombing. On average, 100 Americans die on government roads every day. Now, we're talking about carnage. We're talking about maimed and twisted wreckage. Everything as bad as what a whole main bomb will, will produce. We have that on the highways 100 times a day on average. Now, um, and, and the reason this is important is because the roads... In a, in a society like America where the roads have all been socialized, um, and, and this took place, literally it took place by act of Congress in the 1920s when government seized control of the roads. They socialized the roads in the 1920s. And when you have a situation like this where the roads have been socialized and the government has, has seized them, you, you can't help but to have uh, an example of the tragedy of the commons. And you might say, well, you're cold-hearted. Uh, can't you have compassion for the suffering of those people in Boston? Yes, I do. I feel horrible about it. Um, but who is 
cold and and who's without compassion is it the person who only who only focuses on the death of those three people or is it uh, maybe ignoring the hundreds of lives that are taken daily um, and, and and who is who is really cold and without compassion is it the person who who focuses on the three deaths or or the person who focuses on the hundred um, you have to again. You have to keep this stuff in perspective. Most, if not all, of those hundred deaths on American roads could be avoided. They're largely a result of government-imposed socialism. Uh, statist thinking is butchering a hundred Americans every single day on average. Statist thinking—that's um, central planning, top-down solutions, the glorification of authority. And the disconnect of individual responsibility. This is butchering a hundred Americans every single day on average. Every single day this happens. Death doesn't take a day off. Highway deaths happen fast with little or no warning and are often caused by somebody who ends up driving away unharmed. Now I realize, you know, what happened in Boston is horrible. And no matter what story we, we accept, if we take the mainstream media story, if we take the government story, if we take the wild accusations of the Internet, or if we take some balance in between, it, doesn't, it, it almost doesn't matter. You have to keep in focus that there were three people horribly killed and, and many injured. But every day that number is 100 on the American highways. 100 deaths plus all those that are maimed, permanently injured, lives destroyed, altered forever. This happens, and it happens because of socialized roads, and it happens because of the, of the tragedy of the commons that, uh, uh, that the socialized roads produce. Now, just for a moment, let me take you back to Boston. And like I said, I don't want to focus on this the whole podcast, but I do want to point out a couple things. Um, there's a, a book that I've been reading called People Without Government, an Anthropology of Anarchism by Harold Barclay. And it's a, a really good book. It goes, uh, it, it literally, well, it lays out some, some basic concepts in the beginning. And then it just goes from one group to the next and starts showing. Uh, now, I, I think, I can't remember the exact when this book was, I should have looked this up because I said this the other day on the podcast too. I can't remember if it was later eighties, early nineties, something like that when, when, uh, Barclay wrote this book. But, um, but many of the, the groups that he refers to have since been swallowed up by the state in one form or another. So it's not exactly up to date, but, uh, given, you know, that we're just talking about, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, even that recently, uh, he goes through and lists group after group after group after group that were at that time living in a stateless society. Now he doesn't paint the picture of a perfect, you know, a perfect uh, anarchical utopia where everyone walks around exchanging flowers and and butterflies are everywhere and everybody's happy and they're all just singing songs. And he doesn't paint that kind of a false picture. Um, we're just looking at anarchy as being a, a civilization of people that are living under voluntary circumstances and, and they're not the subjects of coercive government. That's all, that's all anarchy is. Don't have these visions in your mind 
that um, that you know that uh, a perfect ANCAP society is the only way to think, and and anything less than that is not you know it's it's somehow uh, unacceptable. Well, to me or to you, that may be the case. We may strive towards a perfect ANCAP society. Um, but different people are different, and different cultures in different areas develop these things differently. So when we talk, like he in the book, he talks about the Berbers, and he talks about the, you know, the um, uh, the Australia, uh, Australian Aborigines. He talks about people in Borneo. He talks about the um, uh, the Bushmen in Africa, and and he talks about these different groups that were all living stateless societies as of the writing of the book, and none of them are perfect. But but humans are not perfect, so we can't expect uh, a society I- anywhere to develop with absolute perfect harmony. There's always going to be glitches. The thing you have to do is compare a voluntary society to one where there's a, a, a course of government that lords over the people, and you compare the two, and what you find, and he lays this out as he goes through and takes one uh, one group after the next, and he talks about how they deal with law and how they deal with... Uh, you know, basically self-policing and these different things that, that a society faces. And he shows that even though they're a voluntary society and even though they're entirely anarchical, uh, they still have ways of dealing with these things. And, um, and one of the things that he shows very clearly is in these, uh, in these non-government societies, murder is rare. It's very rare in those kind of societies that humans go all the way to the point of committing murder. It's, it's not at all common. And in addition to that, they have internal ways of dealing with it. Each one is, you know, many of them are very different from others. There's some, some, a wide variety of ways that these different societies deal with crimes and specifically murder. But the point is that they deal with it and that it, 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 it incurs far less than in a society uh, with a course of government. And there's all kinds of economic reasons why that takes place. But, it, but it's important just to realize that, again, we don't have to have the perfect society to say there's an anarchical society. You might pick out the Berbers and you might say, well, but they have chieftains. Yes, they do. But those are all followed voluntarily. You can leave that society anytime you want. Try that with America. Try just deciding one day that wherever you live and wherever whatever town you live in or whatever, that you're just not going to follow the magistrate's orders. You're not going to follow a judge's orders or a cop's orders. See what happens to you. In the Berber society, you may not be able to buy milk the next day. Uh, there, there are mechanisms as to which you're going to have to face a problem with your society. But you try that in America and a cop will beat you down, handcuff you, you continue to resist, he'll shoot you, he'll kill you. And this is the problem when you look at something like Boston. What you're looking at is levels and levels of society that have been forced under the foot of a violent uh, government all their lives for generations. So whether you look at the Boston Massacre, I'm sorry, whether you look at the Boston Marathon bombing as um, as directly caused by government through some kind of conspiracy or some kind of involvement of the government uh, in one way or the other, or whether what happened in, in at the Boston uh, bombing uh, was some combination or whether it was entirely the result of two guys plotting a horrible thing, no matter how you look at it, ultimately... 
it's caused by governments because governments are messing with local issues like in Chechnya and governments are messing with people's ethnicity and governments are constantly using aggression upon people. And when people are aggressed upon every day, every day, every day, it will come back in the form of aggression. You just, you can't, you know, the Bible says that what you plant, that's what you reap. Whatever seeds you put in the ground, you can't put, you know, you can't put apple seeds in the ground and expect to grow cotton from that. If you put apple seeds in the ground, you will grow apples. Well, the same thing goes with weeds. If you plant weeds, you can't expect to get mushrooms. It's, it's not going to do it. And when the governments constantly around the world, they plant hate, they plant anger, they, they cause division among groups, and, uh, and they exist by aggression and violence and robbery and lies and theft. Oh, I said robbery already. Anyway, um, when that's what's being planted constantly, we shouldn't be surprised at the harvest when it takes place. Now, is it crazy to suspect government involvement in this whole mess in Boston? Well, um, you know, Andrew Napolitano, the so-called judge, he did a, a really good video. And he did this video, I think, three or four months ago. But it's still, it's still, very, uh, it's still very telling. And I'll, put a, I'll, put the, I'll post the video in today's show notes on badquaker.com. They'll be down at the very bottom because it's, it'll be the YouTube video itself that'll be embedded in the, in the page. So if you, if you want to see Andrew Napolitano's uh, uh, video on this, uh, go to badquaker.com to today's show notes, scroll down, and you'll see the, the embedded YouTube video at the bottom of the page. So he says in this video, he says that since 9-11-2001, there have been 20 foiled uh, terror plots in America. And of course, this is before, like I say, it's months ago, so he doesn't involve the, uh, the Boston thing in this. So he says there have been 20 foiled terrorist plots in America. Three of those were foiled by private individuals, and he names them and he goes through the details, and 17 of those were foiled by the FBI uh, um, themselves. And, and, but the problem is all 17 of the plots that were foiled by the FBI were planned, funded, controlled, and very much like a movie produced by the FBI. The FBI controlled every aspect of all 17 of those plots. They set the people up. They first, they carefully selected young men, almost, almost entirely. Uh, there's a couple exceptions, but almost entirely they selected young Muslim men uh, or men with uh, uh, Muslim background who were susceptible to manipulation through because they're drug addicts, they're mentally handicapped of some kind, they're poor, they're homeless, they're jobless. They're some way they're desperate, and the FBI would approach them um, very in a very tricky way, and they change their plan a little here and there according to what it is they need to get done. But in all seventeen cases, this is what they did: they picked people. Um, that, that were uh, susceptible to this kind of manipulation. In several of these cases, the FBI actually used third-party individuals that, uh, that were looking at really serious convictions or they had some other trouble like that, some other problems that the FBI could use against them to control them, to threaten them with, to get them to become part of this plot to entrap the people with. And of all 17 of these plots that the FBI did, um, the FBI invented them, 
And then the FBI comes out and takes big credit for him. So take a look at that YouTube. Uh, you know, uh, Andrew Napolitano explains it better than I do. But, um, but clearly, so, you know, I used to tell my kids when they were little, I would say, I would tell you, and this is how you tell how things are going to happen. This is how you, you can tell what's going to happen, what's about to happen, or what tends to happen. And I would say, watch now, watch. Duck, duck, goose. Duck, duck, goose. Duck, duck, goose. Duck, duck, what comes next? Goose. You don't have to be a genius to figure it out. If you hear the person saying, duck, duck, goose. Duck, duck, goose. Duck, duck, the next one's goose. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be, or it will every single time, or it doesn't, it's not a, an absolute scientific way to prove the future, but you can look at trends, you can watch trends, you can learn from trends, and you can expect what's going to happen by, by, by observing what's already happened. And this is the case when we're talking about something like the government. So is it crazy to think that that maybe the government had some level of involvement. And I'm not saying it was entirely plotted or that the government killed people or what. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, is it really crazy to suspect some kind of involvement? Well, when you look back at the prior uh, 17 cases, each one, right in a row, one after the other, that the FBI had a substantial involvement in planning it, in funding it, in controlling it, producing it, and making it happen. Then when another one comes along, I think it's naive, um, maybe even silly, foolish at least, to not at least consider the possibility that there may have been some involvement. Um, we're... Uh, uh, just to kind of follow through on this, and, and and not because I want to focus on it forever, but because there, but because the media is still talking about it, and because the storyline is still changing, and events are still, you know, uh, being re-examined and re-explained on the Bad Quaker forum, and you can get to that by going to badquaker.com, and on the upper right-hand side, there's a button for the forum, and you can go right to it. On the forum, and, and there'll be a link in today's show notes for, for this page, but in the forum, we're beginning a um, sort of a, a timeline of this tragedy in Boston, and we're going to update it as more information is given, so that uh, at some point in time, we're going to see what the government's final story on this is, and you'll be able to see how the story has changed through time. And uh, uh, Because, you know, th- it, we watch this happen every time, whether we're talking about something like uh, the Sandy Hook shooting or the Colorado, uh, Aurora, uh, Colorado shooting, or whether we're talking about, you know, uh, going all the way back to... Uh, um, like the Waco uh, tragedy with the uh, Branch Davidians, uh, each time the government story changes over and over and over and over. But by the time it's all over with, there's uh, people tend to forget how many times the government lied to you in the process of coming up with a story that's palatable. So that's our purpose in the uh, in the timeline thread over there. Um, I did want to point out, though, that after the FBI first said that they had no idea who the two suspects were and asked the public's help in identifying them, they showed those the pictures and they asked who these people were, now the FBI is admitting that they knew who they were and had a relationship with the older brother going back at least two years. Now, I have to wonder when I see something like that, are they covering their own incompetence or are they covering their involvement? 
I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I tend to think it's probably a combination. I tend to think that some of the FBI agents um, were, were just acted incompetently. And I have a tendency to think that, you know, there may have been some involvement too, at least in, in changing the story and the cover-up. But even if you believe the FBI had absolutely nothing to do with the actual bombing, even if, even if we assume the government's story as being true, you have to admit the incompetency of the agency. Now, I'm not asking you to, to believe that each individual agent was incompetent. There are agents that are really good at what they do, individual agents that are really good at what they do. But that doesn't matter. The structure of the FBI, just like the structure of every other government agency and most big corporations, is based on central planning, top-down solutions, the glorification of authority, and a disconnect of the individual's responsibilities. So, so you, can't have, uh, you can't have an organization structured like that and expect it to be competent. Think about, um, think about the post office or the DMV. Imagine if the post office had the ability uh, or the power over life and death. Think about how, well, I don't know about everybody in the world, but in my situation, uh, about once a week, I get mail f- that's not addressed to me. Oftentimes, it's addressed with the right number but the wrong street, or sometimes with the right street but the wrong number. Sometimes my, ba- my mailbox will have uh, all of the mail in it is addressed to, to a different address. And I know that my mail got dropped in somebody else's box. And then it's up to the neighbors to try to sort it all out. Or we can just take it in and write all over it, you know, not at this address and send it back. And maybe it'll get there. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But I don't know how many times that I have expected to get something in the mail and didn't get it. I I literally don't know how many times it's happened to me. So what if the same agency uh, run the same way and everything else had the power of life or death over people? Or what about going down to the DMV and, and you know, dealing with a DMV? And, 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 this, and I've had a wide variety of experiences in there. There's a DMV, uh, they, actually in Ohio they call it a BMV, uh, a Bureau of Motor Vehicles rather than Department of Motor Vehicles. But in uh, where I live here, it's about equal distance to go to either of two different BMVs. One is in the town of Franklin, Ohio, and the other is in the town of Lebanon, Ohio. Now, if I go to the one in Franklin, I find the people in there very friendly, as, as long as they're not overwhelmed with business. They're very friendly. They're very efficient. Um, I go to the one in Lebanon, Ohio, and they are rude. They are cold. Um, they are angry. And part of the reason why is the difference of the culture of the two towns. And part of the reason why is because the one in Lebanon is also in the county seat. So you get a lot of, there's a lot more governmental activity taking place there. And there's a lot more, uh, everything's in more of a hurry. Where the one in Franklin is really kind of a redneck area and it's a low income area and everybody's kicked back. And so as long as you go in with a kickback attitude, all of the employees have a kickback attitude, and everything flows pretty good. But, but even in the best of circumstances, it's still a BMV, and they still have all these stupid hoops you have to jump through and paperwork you have to know ahead of time what you have to have filled out. And, you, and it's totally different 
in Ohio than it was when I lived in California or when I lived in Nevada or in Kentucky or any of the other places I've lived. Each one is different, but all of them have certain levels of incompetency built into them. And now think about the post office and you think about a DMV or a BMV or whatever. And imagine if the if the FBI's crime lab, where they're in there running DNA samples from around the world, and and people's lives are dependent upon uh, the results of laboratory testing and analysis and so forth. What if what if the post office or what if the DMV ran the uh, the FBI's crime crime lab? Well, the fact is, the reality of the situation is, that's exactly who's doing this. It's the, it, there's, no, there's no magic formula that being hired by the FBI makes you, you know, suddenly do your job so much better than somebody that works at the BMV or somebody that works at Child Protection Services or somebody that works in, the, you know, in, in uh, uh, any other government service. Every level of government... Um, it, it doesn't matter what letters that you tack onto it. You have the same problems because it's the structure of the agency itself. Again, we're talking about central planning, top-down solutions, the glorification of authority, and a disconnect of the in- individual's responsibilities. I watched these people in NASA. I didn't work for NASA all that long, I, and I was a contractor. I wasn't an actual employee. But, um, but what I observed in NASA was I observed, I hate to say it, but brainless bureaucrats, bureaucrats working uh, in positions that, that they had obtained through political means, through friends, through family, through influence, and they, and they had gotten themselves into these positions, but they were absolutely incompetent in these, in these positions. And, um, and these brainless bureaucrats were ordering around uh, a staff of lethargic government paper, paper shufflers, people who um, might, under the right circumstances, be very enthusiastic and do a good job, but the system itself kept them, because their bosses were brainless bureaucrats, the system itself kept them beat down, rewarded them for, for more lethargic behavior, and punished them for enthusiasm. And this was how NASA worked. So NASA didn't get anything done because of NASA employees. NASA got everything that I observed that NASA got done, it got it done through, uh, through contractors in spite of NASA, not because of NASA. One final example of, uh, of government, um, you know, the, 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 the poor performance of government is just to go back and think about the post office for a moment and think about how much mail you get from the post office every day that if it came in your inbox, in your, uh, in your email, it would be filtered out as spam. Think about how much unsolicited mail you get in your uh, postal service post box every single day. And there's no way to stop it. And you can't close it. Um, there was even a Seinfeld episode where uh, one of the characters tr- attempted to no longer have a, uh, a mailbox address. And they made a comedic situation out of it. But the fact is, you can't. You can't contact the post office post office and say you can no longer deliver to this address and you and you just can't do it there's it's not within the system because even something that basic uh as receiving mail through the post office is based on aggression it's ultimately it's based on aggression 
Okay, so when I get back from the commercial break, we'll see if we can take this in a slightly different direction. Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. Okay, so thanks for sticking with me through the break. Um, I want to refer to uh, to an article by uh, Kevin Carson. This is from 2010, and it appeared over at the Center for a Stateless Society. And I'll provide a link in today's show notes for it. The name of the article is Why Self-Organized Networks Will Destroy Hierarchies. And I think Kevin, uh, Kevin Carson did a really good job in this article. And even though it's, what, three years old now, um, it's, really worth, uh, it's really worth reading. It's a very short article. Oh, I would say it's probably only seven or 800 words long, which, which is basically just less than one page, you know, if you printed it, if you typed it out or whatever. But it's a really good article. I'm going to read a couple little excerpts of it. But uh, seriously, get over to badquaker.com in today's show notes. Hit that link to Center for Stateless Society and read Kevin Carson's uh, article. It's, it's brief and really good and really to the point. So he makes a couple of, uh, of points. And I want to read just a couple outtakes of it. I'm not going to read his whole article. But he says... Um, this is why he's, he's giving explanations as to why uh, self-organized networks um, based on spontaneous, you know, spontaneous order, uh, why they're going to destroy hierarchies. And so the first reason he gives is Hayekian information problems. The people in authority who make the rules interfere with the people who know how to do the job and are in direct contact with the situation. The people who make the rules know nothing about the work that they're interfering with. The people who make the rules are unaccountable to the people who know how to do the work. Consequently, all authority-based rules create a suboptimal result and irrationality uh, when they interfere with the judgment of those in direct contact with the situation. And I've talked about this a lot before. You know... um, Almost any corporation, the way they're the way they're put together, the decision makers in the in the in the structure of the of the corporation, the decision makers are so removed from from the consequences of their decisions that and the and the uh, that you know you can see this really easy if you go to a, a fast food drive through and Taco Bell is notorious about this but there are several, several others too and I, I should say that actually the last few times I've been to Taco Bell's it didn't happen so maybe the you know through the the dinosaur uh, slow brain thinking of a corporation maybe Taco Bell has learned this but. Um, but for a very long time, whether you called a fast food place for, for a pickup or delivery order, or if you pulled into the drive-thru, the first thing you were hit with was a recording that threw a sales pitch at you. And, um, you know, I don't know of anybody 
who would think on the ground level, whether you're in the store or whether you're just in the drive-through, I don't I don't know of anybody who would think this would be a good idea. The other thing with uh, that I, that we used to see really strongly, I was in the restaurant industry for a few years back in the late '80s and early '90s. I was attempting to get out of other kinds of industry, and I thought, well, maybe you know, maybe we can get a restaurant. My wife and I uh, put a lot of effort into it. Maybe we can get our own restaurant and get that going. So we were in the restaurant industry for a while, and it was in uh, specifically corporate-owned restaurants. We were trying to get experience. And and we were constantly, you know, uh, we had phone scripts. That as soon as the phone rang, we had to say this script. And, and the script tended to get longer and longer every time the, the big shots in the corporation would talk about the phone script. And so pretty soon, you know, we've got to take, literally, we're taking like 200 calls an hour to, to take phone orders. And with each call, the script that we have to say when we answer the phone is getting longer and longer and longer. And the people calling, they don't want to hear that. If they're calling you to order food, the odds are they already have your menu or they know your menu and they already know what they want. Very few, proportionately very few people would call us at the restaurant and have no idea what they wanted and have us walk them through. It did happen occasionally. It did happen. But the vast majority like 98% or more, knew exactly what they wanted when they called. And for you to irritate them by reading a script and then putting them on hold was no fun for anybody. Why do you have to put them on hold? Because you're taking several seconds here out of every single phone call to read the script. Well, that delays how fast you can help the other customers. But it didn't matter because this order came from top down. And that's the end of it. And there's no input back to them. And that's the, the, the point... Uh, this is Kevin Carson's second point. I'll read this. He says, number two, groupthink. Hierarchies systematically suppress negative feedback on the results of their policies. Uh, and then he goes on to say, he quotes somebody else that says, uh, nobody tells the truth to a man with a gun. Um, this is kind of, uh, well, no, I, I won't go off in that direction. I uh, don't have time to take, I'll, I'll stick with Kevin Carson's thing here without going off in one of my th- rants. Okay, so he says, uh, hierarchies are very good at telling uh, naked emperors how good their clothes look. Hierarchies also systematically suppress critical thinking ability in their members. Psychological studies have found that people in positions of authority become less likely to evaluate communications based on their internal logic and instead evaluate them based on the authority of the source. Now, I, I've, I observed this so much when I was in the aerospace industry. Uh, there was one, um, there was one, oh, I would say we would probably consider him to be a low-level executive. If you consider, like, um, you know, there were the hourly workers, and then there was the, uh, the salaried um, people who were not actually bosses, but they were, uh, you know, they didn't get paid for overtime and things like that. They were in the salary division. And then you start to have the the frontline supervision, the actual foremans or bosses or whatever that directly communicated with uh, both the hourly and salaried workers. And then you have a level of management that's over the bosses, that's over the frontline bosses. And then you have a level of management that's that's executive to that level of manage, but but not up in the upper level of executives. And so, I mean, you just have layers and layers and layers of this. So there was one guy that was um, uh, 
He was my boss's boss's boss. Well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, and, and I had a pretty good relationship with him, but when I would try to communicate something to him, if it had any technical, uh, any, anything about it that was of technical nature, he would just skim past it, wouldn't make any effort to understand it, and just assume somebody else is taking care of it. Because, because for him to stop and think of something on a technical level, uh, it, it just wasn't, he didn't have time in his day to go through that kind of thing. So, so because I was three tears down or whatever it was, um, anything that I had to say about that probably wasn't important or he probably had no interest in, in his mind. So he would just let it pass. But the funny thing is, if I would see his boss, like, uh, you know, coming out of the cafeteria or whatever, and I could mention to him, hey, you know, here's something, and talk in a, in a, as we're walking along in a very unofficial way and explain something to him as we're walking back from lunch or whatever. Um, now, I don't know if I mention it, but in the, in the case of the, of the first boss that I was talking about, I had, let's, let's say I had written him an email explaining something very technical and asking his input or asking him to take action on it. Okay, and then I'm in a casual setting with his boss, and I explained something to him, and, and he says, oh, you know, that kind of makes sense. And the reason I was able to do that is because the personality um, abilities between he and I. And so then the next thing you know, he tells that second tear down boss, and that guy gets a hold of me. He's got a great idea all of a sudden. He, didn't, he has, hasn't fleshed it all out, but he's got this great idea, and maybe I can work on it. And what he's really done is he's completely ignored the email that I sent to him explaining to him the situation. He doesn't even know that I sent it to him. Now, he, he opened it. He glanced through it. He made some kind of comment to it, and he sent it back to me. But he, he didn't have any knowledge beyond that. But when his boss tells him the exact same thing, then all of a sudden he's got this great idea, and he wants me to handle it for him. And this is, this, is, this is how it works. Um, it's very rare that, uh, that you can be honest with someone over you in a corporate setting. It, it, unless you really know how to do it, you almost always have to bring information in through some kind of a back door and get it to trickle back down to the guy that you really want to get it to. You can't take it straight to that person if you're an underling because he just won't listen to you. So really, in both these situations, what we have is an information problem. Uh, we have knowledge and we have feedback. The knowledge being that people on the ground floor, people, the hands-on workers, have a tendency to know far more about what they're doing than the boss, than the first level up boss. And the first level up boss has a lot better idea of what's going on on the ground level than the second tier up boss. And, and even up to the third tier, he has less knowledge of what's going on. And the fourth tier, he has even less knowledge of what's going on. And when you consider a large, comp a large corporation and how many levels of bosses there are, um, it can be mind-blowing. I mean, there, there, are, you know, there are levels and levels and levels where the opportunity for lost information and, and still top-down decisions without that information feedback. So again, you have the two things, the actual knowledge of what needs to be done and how it needs to be done, and the feedback loop that keeps, uh, that, that keeps the bad decisions 
um, from from ever from keeps the news of the bad decisions or keeps the input of the bad decisions from ever going back up through that stream. You know, I, I think of the old. Uh, well, no, I won't. I won't go that direction. We won't talk about what flows downhill. So now the third point in uh, in Kevin's uh, uh, article is surveillance, uh, essentially. Now, he doesn't use that word. He goes about it in a little bit different way. But essentially, for hierarchies to work, the people on the top, because, there's, because again, this is an information problem, and there's so many limitations as to how that information, it, it can come down from the top, but it just can't go up from the bottom. So, um, so for a hierarchy to work, you have to have some way for the people on the top to look down and peer into the bottom. You have to have some form of surveillance. And this is why I, there's some real popular shows on TV right now where um, uh, where they'll have a business and the boss doesn't know why the business is not working properly. So another uh, group will come in from the television show and they'll put up cameras all over the the business. And, and there's I know there's a couple of these that work with restaurants and do the same thing with restaurants. So they come in and they put cameras all up in every direction and then the uh, they watch what happens when the boss is not there and then all of a sudden the boss's eyes are open now you need to make these changes. Well this is a this is an example of how that information doesn't flow up and bad decisions flow down. So uh, so surveillance becomes absolutely necessary for a hierarchy to work. And this is what we see with the expansion of the of the um, of the police state. It's an absolute necessity if you're a statist. If you believe that having a state is a good thing and a necessary thing, and if you believe that the you know that the idea of a state is uh, the best way that human beings can function, then uh, once you face the pro- the information problems that are described in you know that Kevin described here in point one and point two, then you're stuck believing that the only solution is more surveillance. That means cameras on every corner, cops looking through your closet. That's what. That's the natural reaction of this. You can't have, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a horse and a carriage. One without the other is not going to accomplish what you need. What you need, you're going to have to have them both together. A car with no engine is not much value. Well, this is the way it is when you think of the state. If you b- actually believe these things that the government is good and we have to have you know, a coercive government to get people to function like this and to do these things and have society work right, if you believe that, then you're stuck. If you think it through and if you're consistent, then you're stuck accepting a surveillance society because it's the only hope of, uh, of a coercive government of ever functioning. And, of course, that creates a situation where that course of government is functioning in a manner that is anything other than civilized, really. Um, uh, and, and Kevin uh, references a really good book in this. He, he talks about um, Seeing Like a State, which is a book by James C. Scott. And, um, and, he, and he doesn't really reference it a lot. He just mentions that this is something that James C. Scott covers in his book, Seeing Like a State, because that's really how, you know, if you think of the state as that entity that I talk about sometimes, that's how the state has to function. It has to look down from above. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like I I reference quite a few times to, uh, to the gaming world 
there are games that you you take different perspectives in different games, like some games are a first person shooter and so forth like this. But games that are that that take you in the God view where you're looking down at the civilization and you're, you know, you're building cities or you're manipulating armies or you're doing these different things, but your view is uh, top down from, from like if you're God sitting in heaven looking down on this, on this whole world and then you're managing it in one way or the other. Well, that's, that's the state view. That's how the state sees things. And if you can imagine yourself in a game like that where, uh, where you're trying to manage civilization, the more information you have, the more successful you're going to be in in this task and the less information you have or the more flawed the information you have the less you're going to be able to control the society and that's what it's all about in real life not just in the in this in the gaming world in the real li- in real life it's all about the state looking at the world through god point of view through a god uh, through god eyes and trying to manipulate and control everything for its own uh, purposes, and not for the not for the purposes of the individual. So, um, so I want to encourage you to read that little article: uh, "Why self Why self organized networks will destroy hierarchies" by Kevin Carson. It's a good little article, and it's well worth your time. There's another uh, article that I'd like to reference today. Um, that you can find over at lourockwell.com, and I'll put a link in today's uh, podcast notes for this one also. And it's about, um, the title of it is a little little confusing for an American audience, but the title is Liberal Society Hidden in the Dark Ages. It's not referring to liberal like Americans think of liberal today, you know, uh, the Nancy Pelosi's and the, you know, that kind of thing. Um, It's talking about what we would more consider toward libertarian society. And um, possibly even toward an anarchical society, and and how the Dark Ages or the so-called Dark Ages were uh, were a time of, in some areas in Europe, it was actually stateless, in other areas it was very much a monarchical states, um, and this is not at all like what you're going to read in in government uh, school books and government history books and government approved history. They want us, you know, the 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 um, all that kind of uh, sources want us to believe that either the Roman government, I mean the uh, the Roman Church, you know, the Roman Catholic Church had some type of um, state like authority over all of Europe during the Dark Ages. They want you to either believe that story or they want you to believe that there were these kingdoms where these despotic kings had total authority over you know, areas of Europe. And neither of those are true. The Catholic Church did have varying amounts of power, but really during what's considered the Dark Ages of 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., the Catholic Church did not have the kind of power that's often attributed to it. It had influence, but that influence was based on voluntary uh, uh, influence. It was not. It was not uh, absolute authority like a state has. Now it is true, especially after fifteen hundred, um, the the uh, the Catholic Church, specifically some of the of the popes and some of the the different uh, bishops and so forth, had varying degrees of influence with um, like the King of France or with you know the Holy Roman Emperor or or the King of England or the King of Spain or whatever. But for the most part, from fi- that so-called Dark Ages, from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., 
the the Catholic the Catholic Church's um, uh, influence was uh, was very limited, and it it was it was all based on voluntary choices, not on coercion. Now you know this is what I was saying earlier about separating things out and saying, yeah, okay, um, this may not be the exact. Uh, anarchical paradise you're looking for, but it's still voluntary. You know, uh, you may not say that Aboriginal uh, life in in Australia is the perfect utopia, but it's still voluntary. You can exit it if you wish, and that was the that was the primary influence during the Dark Ages of the Catholic Church. There was a lot of you know there was a lot of belief in that. But it was all based on voluntarily choosing to do what the church was telling you. Uh, very little of it was coerced. And as far as the kingdoms go, uh, it, during the Dark Ages, there, we really didn't see in most of Europe, uh, there, there really wasn't the kind of kingdoms that the state wants you to believe. Um, very few uh, uh, actual kings existed in Europe where they had... The the uh, you know this idea that the king was next was next to God and his will was the, like the will of God and and he could uh, whatever he spoke was law well that really didn't exist in Europe in most of Europe especially during the so-called Dark Ages Rome fell between 400 and 500 A.D. the Visigoths Huns and Vandals uh, pretty much destroyed the last um, the last remnants of the actual government of Rome. And it pretty much, by about 500 uh, A.D., um, the state, uh, in, in the sense that we think of it, ceased to exist in most of Europe. Now, this doesn't count. Um, the state was still very strong in, in Constantinople, in the eastern, uh, uh, the eastern part of the empire. But, uh, and there was an influence that went all the way into parts of Greece and into parts of Turkey and... Uh, it was still power. The state was still powerful there, and a, and the state certainly existed in places like China and other places. But for the bulk of Europe, by 500 A.D., the state pretty much didn't exist in Europe. There were, you know, small individual uh, despots here and there, um, little pockets of uh, of despotism. But for the vast majority of people in Europe. They lived under voluntary circumstances, and you think about um, uh, you know you know some of the lies were told about that time frame is uh, you know how horrible life was for the peasantry and and so forth like this. But you have to realize they were not slaves um, during the Dark Ages. Slavery, as far as uh, a chattel slavery, pretty much disappeared. It was pretty much gone during that time frame. And this article I'm talking about over at Lou Rockwell kind of goes through this and points out some of it. Uh, also, I'm reading a book called People Without Government, and Anthropology of Anarchism. Oh, I think I mentioned that earlier in the podcast by Harold Barclay. Um, and, and his references are also um, enlightening on this view rather than just assuming that if it's not a, an anarchy utopia, then it has to be the state. You, you have to be able to take, you know, um, uh, to understand that the state is only there when you have that belief in a, in a, um, in a government 
that has the ability to coerce. If you don't have the government that has the ability to coerce, you don't have the belief in the state. It's not there. It may not be the perfect anarchical society, but it's not a government. It's not the state. So, um, so the system that existed in, uh, in Europe in the so-called Dark Ages it varied dramatically from what we think of today. Property rights were very different uh, from how we think of them today. Not, it wasn't like the Lockean uh, property rights that most of us would, you know, uh, anarcho-capitalists would like to see. Um, ownership had sort of reverted, not just ownership in general, ownership of property, reverted back to uh, sort of a European pr- tribal version of ownership. Uh, like I said, chattel slavery completely vanished from most of Europe between 500 and 1500 A.D. Because if you have no state, you have no slavery. I mean, the two things, George, uh, George C. Scott, um, no, not George C. Scott, <laughs> James C. Scott covers that really well, really well, <laughs> covers that really well in um, uh, The Art of Not Being Governed, that it's almost impossible to have slavery if you don't have a state. So, uh, so slavery, chattel slavery, vanished during that uh, thousand thousand year period in uh, most of Europe. Most of uh, and and things like uh, the women's role in Europe uh, after the fall of Rome, it pretty much returned to the traditional European tribal role for women. They owned property. They ran businesses in areas where uh, voting was done. Uh, women were allowed to vote. So a lot of the oppression that was in existence in the paternal society of Rome fell away, and women had a lot more rights during that time frame than uh, uh, than in after than after fifteen hundred and fifteen hundred and on. Uh, women uh, lost a lot of their rights at that time, and um, actually in this article at Lou Rockwell. Uh, the author uh, uh, references a, a, a really good book called Those Terrible Middle Ages, Debunking the Myths. And it's by a French historian. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce her name. But, um, but in her book, she goes through point by point and debunks these different uh, myths about the Middle Ages and shows that, indeed, um, you know, the, the, the way people think about the so-called Dark Ages is absolutely backwards from how it really was. One thing to think about with this, you know, I mentioned that the peasants weren't slaves. Uh, the, the relationship between landowners and people who worked the land for the landowners was very difficult for us to imagine today the way that we think of property and property rights. For example, during most of those dark ages and over most of Europe, a landowner uh, didn't have the right to sell his land. He was locked into his land and could and did not have the right to sell it, or or either he and or I should say in addition to that, he didn't have the right to destroy his own property, even down to something uh, you know meaningless, something some little thing. He didn't have the right to destroy his own property because of the the odd. Um, that Europe had mostly reverted back to pre-Roman uh, uh, property values and proper uh, understanding of property rights. And so uh, the owner of a land, let, let's, say, let's say you inherited um, uh, you know, 10,000 acres or something uh, from your father and you became the, the, the lord of that land, the lord of the manor or whatever, 
then um, you you were not allowed. Let's say your brother wanted a certain amount of land. You couldn't take off part of your land that you had inherited from your father and give it to your brother, or you couldn't sell it to anyone. You were stuck owning it. And part of the reason for that was um, because the the feeling was that that uh, that the land had a certain ownership on you. It was a two way thing that you owned the land and the land owned you. So you couldn't you couldn't separate the land owner from the land itself. And a very similar thing was with the peasantry that worked the land. The peasantry had in many ways more property rights over the land they were working than the actual land owner. Um, the landowner, let's say the, the, let's say you have peasants that have worked the same field for four generations or 10 generations or whatever. The landowner can't come down and just say, you know what, uh, I need you, you to move and go uh, farm over there and I'm going to give this plot of land to another peasant to work. He didn't have the right to do that. The landowner did not have the right to have that kind of managerial uh, authority over his own land. The peasant, in many cases, has had more rights over the land than the landowner. Now, uh, when you get closer to 1500, and and I don't have time to really go into it today, but um, you know there was the problem of petty uh, petty nobles becoming a little bit more powerful, and uh, there was the influence of the church during that time to to you know to make that happen and bring uh, for politics to take place. And this system that worked for about a thousand years slowly broke down over that thousand years. So by 1500, you started having um, it. It evolved from you know minor nobles owning land to petty kings to more powerful local kings to actual uh, the births of empires in France and England and in Spain and in um, in the Holy Roman Empire and in, in uh, Central Europe. Uh, and and the petty kings that were almost uh, powerless during during the most of the Dark Ages in Italy, by 1500 you have these little pockets of of true despots that um, controlled city basically city states around uh, the Mediterranean, and so the system eventually fell apart by 1500, and there were a lot of circumstances that brought that about. But um, but let me reference you back to that article, Lou Rockwell, Liberty. No, I'm sorry, Liberal Society Hidden in the Dark Ages. And again, there will be links in today's show notes to that, and you can check that out. So um, that kind of covers everything today. That's all the time I have. I would like to have uh, gone on and talk about that a little further. Maybe I can do that in another podcast and really break down how property rights and property ownership and the responsibilities of the property owner to the peasantry and the responsibilities of the peasantry to the property owner. You know, a property owner couldn't just go down and kill one of his servants or one of the, the uh, you know, the people that worked his property. And he couldn't even go down and take a piece of bread out of their hands. There were really um, strict levels of responsibility in there. And, and the nobles and the landowners and so forth they had to adhere to that. Otherwise, the peasantry just rise, rise, you know, raise up and burn them. Okay, well, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks. 